the mystery passage and the mystery reader this morning will be. Now we're going to look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere near you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 463. Um, yeah, I, I love holiday weekends for a lot of reasons because uh, it feels a little bit more relaxed. But we always, in these moments, because, you know, I mean, you have the effect of the turkey and the excessive rest setting in. Um, we're going to need a little bit more interaction this morning. So this is going to be a two-way conversation, I hope. And uh, I look forward to looking at Psalm 34 with you this morning. We're going to finish up our Resound series where we've been looking at the big question of why we sing, and um, I'm just encouraged by how God has been meeting us with that. I think increasing our, not only our capacity to understand what worship's about, but also our corporate experience, and so that gives me a a chance to honor Aaron, who just walked in the door. Um, Aaron, thanks for all the hard work that you put in serving us. Uh, Last week, I listened to his message. He did an outstanding job, Um, so thank you so much for serving us. Um, And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 34 and finish this up. So it was about the seventh grade for me when I noticed there began to be a division between the guys. Um, Elementary school, like everybody was kind of the same. Um, But in seventh grade there was that wonderful invention called woodshop where Boys were separated from the manly men, and um, I found out very quickly when I was in woodshop, and there actually were guys and girls inside this classroom, that I was probably the least manly man in that class. And um, um, this was expressed um, very early on because I actually can't discern directions very well. I mean, you can ask my wife, every Christmas Eve we... um, you know, there's a little bit of tension when we try to put together toys for our kids, and she's actually much better at it. But I'm not able to kind of look at diagrams and put things together. Um, I'm more of a big picture kind of person. Um, so in the seventh grade, I mean, we had, I mean, there these young guys, I mean, you, seventh grade, they started to be able to change the oil in their dad's cars. I mean, these guys were just crazy. And so here I am, um, I can barely tie my shoes if I'm honest at this point. So I'm in wood shop and these guys are building elaborate, I mean it almost looks like Amish, um, you know, handmade, handcrafted furniture. And I am trying to put together um, a bookshelf. And, uh, and I'm not talking about an elaborate bookshelf, I'm talking about a, a, a one single piece of wood that has two other pieces of wood that are kind of screwed in that. Um, And that took me, I think, nine weeks to complete. Um, And and, and I actually, and probably if I look back on it, I mean, I had a lot of help, like, to actually get those two boards screwed to these other two boards. Um, And I I look back at that, and I I kind of laugh, um, but it's something that's kind of continued. Like, I, I, I can see the directions. I know that most people are able to discern what the little pictures mean, and um, we even put a little snowman together yesterday from Target, so he's on our front lawn, and, and this is something that had literally six pieces to put together, three pictures once again, and um, Zoe was trying to help me, and she said, Dad, I think you should be able to do that. She's like, the directions are right here, and I'm taking the arms, and I'm putting them all different places, but there's an idea there that, I mean, 
there's instructions there, but most of the time, like, I just don't understand what's going on, right? And I, that's one of the big ideas behind worship for us. Um, worship, especially corporate singing, it can just be this generic, hey, why are we doing what we're doing? This is just something that some people do out of tradition. This is something that some people just do um, because they're more musically inclined. But as we've opened up God's Word over the last eight weeks, we've seen that God has a multifaceted plan for us um, in worship. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 34 and God's specific design for this psalm and that we're going to look at this morning is that in corporate worship, God relieves our fears, right? So one of the reasons that we come together, one of the reasons that we sing is because God meets us at the point of our fears. Psalm 34 is this beautiful picture of how God paints a picture of himself as the God that delivers us. Fear is something that is a constant companion for most of us. It's something that imprisons us. It's something that isolates us from God and from one another. And it causes us to suffer in silence. Charles Spurgeon says this when he's talking about, he's talking about the mind in general, but this is a very apt description, I think, of fear. It says, The mind can descend far lower than the body. For in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. That's what it's like to be afraid. That's what it's like to ask questions. That's what it's like to go down the what-if trail over and over again. And what we're going to learn in Psalm 34 is that there is a God who is passionate about delivering his people from their fears. And one of the primary ways that he does that as we come together and as we sing together. So let's look at Psalm 34. If you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? It also should be on the screen behind me. And we're going to read the first ten verses. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that in this moment that we would taste and see that You're good. 
I do pray in this moment that you would deliver us out of all of our fears. I pray that we would look to you and be radiant. I pray that you would help us to experience together the truth of this psalm. I thank you that you do not disqualify us because of our fear, but you invite us to draw near. I thank you that you are attentive to our cries. I thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. And I pray collectively that would be our experience. To do that, we need you to send your spirit to help us to pay attention when it's natural to be tired. We need you to help us to understand your word. I need your spirit to serve this church that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 34. I love this particular psalm because it's a psalm that's born out of experience, right? This isn't a pithy statement that you put on a greeting card, right? This isn't something that you're going to find on Facebook on a meme. I mean, this is a guy that has actually lived life. This is a guy that's actually experienced fear. This is a guy that's actually experienced um, the reality of what it means to be delivered. And he has seen that God has been faithful to meet him every step of the way. And he invites us into his experience. This is a person, it's written by David, that has been humbled by life. If you live life long enough, it will humble you. You will face circumstances that will challenge you. You will face circumstances that overwhelm you. You will face circumstances that you have no way out of apart from God delivering you. This psalm is written to people in just that circumstance. David invites us into his experience of the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 and let's begin to unpack this. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, this is the money verse. Like, if you're going to underline or if you're going to memorize, if you're going to have something written on your heart, make it be this verse. I sought the Lord, and let's see if this is true, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Yeah, amen, right? I mean, that is good news right there. I mean, if this verse is true, right? The anti-anxiety medication market is going to take a serious hit. You know what I'm saying? Like, if this verse is true, our everyday ordinary experience can be transformed. That God has revealed himself as the God who delivers us from all of our fears, right? This, doesn't, this means that he actually welcomes us in the midst of our fear. He welcomes us when we feel overwhelmed. He welcomes us when we can't see straight. And he says, come to me and I will deliver you from all your fears. That is an amazing verse. And what makes this psalm particularly, I think, impactful is the, is the way that it's laid out. Um, this psalm is an acrostic. I don't know if you know that term, but it basically means that this psalm is, each line is written with a, that begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So 
Um, you know, basically A, B, C, D. Each line begins with those kinds of things. And I think God communicates this psalm this way for a couple of reasons. The first is that this is poetry. This is love language. This is the language of relationship. Because in the midst of your fears, you don't need some kind of abstract concept. You need the language of love. You need the language of relationship to know that God is near. Right? But also, I mean, there's something that's also very elementary about um, rehearsing the faithfulness of God. This psalmist, David, took some time to use all of the Hebrew alphabet to, to take some time to rehearse the faithfulness of God to his heart in such a way that he would remember over and over again. This is about repetition, right? I mean, I have a first grader. He comes home every night and we're cutting out little pictures and we're writing his letters over and over again because the ABCs are supposed to be something that's automatic. It's something that comes to the depth of who you are. It's something that you won't forget And this is important. This is the reason why this matters. Because there's going to be a time in your life when you're not going to be able to look for the scriptures to answer. You're going to have to have these things written on your heart. And corporate worship is that rallying point when we're together, when we sing, when we're able to have those truths written on our hearts so that in the moments of darkness that we can be sustained. So that God can deliver us in the midst of all our fears. So it's important for us, right? Because we're fearful people. Because we continually are afraid to rehearse these truths in creative ways over and over again. Because we daily struggle with the battle and the reality of fear. So God, in His mercy and in His kindness, gives us psalms like Psalm 34 so that it would relieve our fears so it would train our hearts to run to him instead of away from him in the midst of our our circumstances and our trials verse four when it says our fears that's literally the same word as terrors right i mean this isn't the boogeyman underneath your bed this is soul level trouble god promises to not let the things that you think will destroy you destroy you And David wrote this when he saw God come through in a situation where he didn't think there was any way out of. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Are you in a situation like that right now where you don't know what's next? Well, look at the prescript with me. Like above verse 1, it says, this helps us to understand what's going on in the psalm. It says, this is a psalm of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, you know, if you're reading that on Tuesday morning, you're probably skipping right over that and rightly so. Um, But if you understand when David wrote this psalm, what was going on in David's life, it'll help you to understand what it looks like to face fear. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was anointed king of Israel at a very young age. The problem was, Israel already had a king, and his name was Saul. So, if you know anything about kings, they don't normally give up their thrones very easily. So there was a lot of tension between David and Saul. 
David tried to do his best to serve Saul. He was brave in the face of a fighting Goliath when everyone else was afraid. Saul was troubled in his soul. So David would play music and play the harp to try to calm the evil spirits that were torturing Saul. Um, But David continued to grow in popularity. So Saul's jealousy increased all the more. All the way to the fact that he began to chase David around and he had to hide in caves. So this psalm is written, so David is facing pressure from Saul on this side, and then this guy named Abimelech that you read about in um, 1 Samuel chapter 21, he is the king of the Philistines, and he is also an enemy. And so the way that David gets out of being surrounded by evil on this side, and the way he gets out of being surrounded by evil on this side is he acts like he's insane. Right, He goes before King Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and he acts like he is literally out of his mind. So much so that he's drooling. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 21 that there's spittle on his beard. That's nasty, right? I mean, yes. yes. All right, let's go. All right. So, yeah, I mean, he is there. He is faking like he's crazy. And Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines, he said, I thought this was some great king. This is a crazy person. Get him out of here, right? This is the situation that God delivered David from. He says, he delivered me from all my fears. This was a circumstance that he didn't have any way out of. And that's a crazy way to get out of it. Um, Incidentally, I mean, I think that you can um, apply this, that God loves your crazy, you know? I mean, he loves you when you are out of your mind and when you are crazy. But I think even more than that, when you don't see a way out, when you are hemmed in on every side, that is God's specialty. That is the place where he loves to meet his people. So the the question for us as the people of God is where will we fix our eyes when we are faced with terror on this side and terror on this side? We can fix our eyes on our circumstances or we can fix our eyes on the faithfulness of God. That's what we see from David. Look at verses 4 and 6. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. What grace? And saved him out of all his troubles. So these are the truths that will anchor us when terror strikes our souls. That God will be faithful. That he will provide a way of escape. Now, fear at its base level is a fight or flight response, right? I mean, we all experience that kind of fear. Like where your body senses danger and you're either going to engage in that trouble or you're going to run away. And so I have an example of this from a couple of weeks ago. Um, Brian and Rachel Barr, um, he spoke here. They were from Houston, and they were staying with us, and we were having, this room was transformed, and we were having a Porterbrook weekend, and very quickly into the class, like my phone starts ringing, and I usually don't answer my phone, but then I started getting several text messages, and I looked, and it was from my daughter, Hannah, and she said, Dad, there's a mouse in the house, and you have to come home. The ladies are freaking out, right? And so I'm reading this text message, and so I give her a call. I was like, 
does she actually want me to leave the meeting? She's like, absolutely. And so I know like what I'm walking into is my wife is terrified of mice. And so um, on the way home, I I stop and I instinctively get a trap that I'm going to be able to deal with the problem. So I walk in the door. I go upstairs to where this mouse is. And my wife and Rachel Barr, who are both very um, energetic ladies, um, they had transformed this room. Um, it looked like something from E.T. I mean, it was like a containment center. And um, they still had their PJs on, but somehow they had decided that they were going to put on their shoes. And so they had their boots on and they had PJs. And you, you, you would think, I mean, and I said, why did you do that? And they said, well, I didn't want the mouse to run up my leg. You know, so very rational thought in the midst of fear. And um, they had a bucket up there. They had a shovel. They had a broom. Um, this I I didn't think this mouse actually had a shot. But then, like, I go and I see, they're like, it's trapped in the closet. And you, I looked in this closet. The the mice, the the mouse probably wasn't any bigger than this. It looked like Ralph S. Mouse, honestly, the the mouse in the motorcycle. I mean, he was terrified. And these girls, (laughs) and they're going after him. And so um, I I put down the little sticky trap that I had purchased from the store. And instantly, he, he ran on there, and I was able to get rid of the rat. And... The, the crisis was averted, right? Is the fight or flight that kind of fear? But the kind of fear that this passage lets us in on is fear that strikes us at an identity level, right? Because fear is very closely related to the idea and the concept of shame. In his book, Befriend, Scott Souls tells the story of a man during the Great Recession of 2008 where people that had a lot of money lost a lot of money. So they lost a lot of their sense of worth and identity and value. There's one particular trader in London who was a multi-billionaire. He lost half of his net worth, right? So he was still a multi-billionaire, but he committed suicide because of his identity, his identity in the pecking order, right? He had lost his status. Fear, right? I mean, a guy that has more than everyone in this room combined, but the the way that he was afraid was that that was going to reflect poorly on him um, in the way that he performs his job and his social status, right? So, and we all can be afraid of the same thing, but for different reasons. And I'll, I'll use my wife and I as example. Like, we're no different. I mean, we can be afraid uh, of money, right? So for my wife, that's very much tied to her childhood and suffering that she went through as a child. So she can go back to a scary place like that. But for me, I suffer when I'm afraid of money issues. It's not because I'm actually afraid that something bad's going to happen, or we're going to lose our house, or we're going to lose everything. It's just because I want people's respect, you know. Um, I call it the, the Dave Ramsey principle, you know. That's kind of s- surpassed the gospel, like, in some ways. And if I don't feel like I've been faithful in that area, it's something that I tend to feel condemned on. So our fears actually reveal something about where we build our identity and where we place our trust. And that's why f- verse 5, look at it with me, is so powerful 
in dealing with our fears because fears reveal our hearts. It says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So very closely linked is fear and shame, right? We're afraid in the midst of our fears. It's not just that we're afraid. We're afraid of what our fears, if we actually go through that thing, what it's going to say about us, what it's going to say about our relationship with God. But the, the money part of this verse is, it says that those that look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So there is something tangible that happens when we lift our eyes off of our fears and we encounter the presence of God and we look at him in all of his glory, in all of his brilliance, in all of his majesty, we actually become radiant, right? That is the good news of corporate worship where we can lay aside the weight and the sins that cling so closely and we can encounter God for all that he is and we can be different, right? The, my favorite verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we are changed from one to degree of glory to another. That's the purpose of gathering as the people of God, so that you can take your eyes off of yourself and place them on the God that delivers us from all of our fears. It's impossible to see him as he is in faith and not be changed, right? So we want to come here and fix our eyes on Jesus. But this is This is more than an abstract concept. This is God meeting us where we are. Look at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. Right? It means the messenger of the Lord. You see these pictures in the Old Testament. It says that he encamps around those who fear him. So the, the picture is that God is ready and he is poised to meet you and deliver you, particularly at your point of need. So this is a picture that God not only um, is this impersonal force, but he is ready to help you. He is encamped around you. He is encamped around your particular situation. And then look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So the fear of the Lord that's there, that replaces the the fears that distract us and terrorize us is a sense of awe over who God is. It's his power. It's his majesty. It's his commitment to us that's demonstrated to us over and over again. And there's two words in verses 8 and 9 that move this from just being a discussion to being worship. And it's at the beginning of verses 8 and 9. It's the word, oh. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the difference between having a discussion about the goodness of God in some abstract theological way and actually experiencing the goodness of God. That's what worship is, that we come here and we say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then I want you to see verse 10. It says that the young lions 
suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, um, I had to dust off um, my Mutual of Omaha Saturdays from when I was a kid. So if you're older, you might recognize that. That's back when we only had three channels, um, and that was before sports came on at noon. Like the only thing that would be on is this show that's called the Mutual of Omaha, and they would explore like wildlife, and they would have lions, and you know, they'd take you to the jungles of Africa, and you try to figure out what's going on. And I mean, honestly, um, it was about as interesting to me as watching paint dry, but um, it was either that or do chores, and so I chose Mutual of Omaha. And what I learned in there, like, I had to think about this verse. It says that the, the young lions suffer want. Now, and a lion is an apex predator. Um, and one of the ways that the young lions become big lions is they have to learn to hunt and feed themselves, right? So the big lions, I mean, they're going to take down the antelope or whatever, and they're going to eat it. And you know who gets the, the leftovers? It's the small ones. So it causes those young lions to, you know, either buck up and get to be a good hunter or they starve. And so it says that young lions have to fend for themselves, essentially. They suffer want. But those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. So what that means for us as the people of God is you'll never have to fend for yourself, right? God is not going to withhold any good thing from his people, right? You're not like a young lion that has to go out and get its own dinner. You have a God that lavishly loves you and has provided for you in the midst of all of your fears. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's his goodness that anchors us in the midst of our fears and our terrors. And honestly, this is where this becomes evangelistic for us, right? Because David is inviting other people to kind of test out the faithfulness of God. The more things that you go through and the more that God meets you, in your fears, the more that you're going to be able to invite other people to come and taste and to see that this God is good and that he is trustworthy and that he can meet you precisely at your point of need. And that's what we want people to experience, I hope, on a weekly basis here um, at Fellowship. And then, this also, I'm going to skip down to verses 17 through 22. It also gives us a picture of what happens when we actually have to go through the thing that we're afraid of, right? There's two ways that God delivers us from fears. One is he just changes our circumstances and he delivers us. The other is he actually meets us with himself in the midst of our fears. Let's look at verses 17 through 22. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So God, sometimes in the midst of the suffering and the hardships of life, we actually are broken hearted. 
we actually experience being crushed in spirit. And it says that he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And that's the challenge, honestly, of being a pastor. It's the challenge of coming into this room every week. Some people had the best week of their life and it was full of joy. It was full of rejoicing. And there's other people that are barely hanging on and they're crushed in their spirit and they're brokenhearted. But corporate worship becomes this rallying point where you experience the nearness of God and you experience the salvation of God over and over through the people of God. I mean, there are people in this room I know that are going through suffering that I can't identify with. But the promise of these verses is that God is near you. That he is actively working to save you in the midst of your trouble. That may seem elementary to you, but that is so radically different than every other religion in the world. That's different than what the world has to offer. That a God wants to be near suffering people. I mean, if you've ever lived in our world, our world runs from suffering people. Our God runs towards suffering people. He is known as the suffering God that suffered with and for his people. You don't have to have it all together to be here in this room. You don't have to have it all together to be used as a witness of God. Richard Sibbs says this. This is about being someone that can mourn in the presence of God, right? You don't, in the South, sometimes people feel like they have to put on some kind of church face to show up. But this is, this is really the invitation of the people of God. Hey, if you're brokenhearted, this is the place for you. If you're crushed in spirit, this is the place for you. Richard Sibbs says this, He never turned any back that came to him, though some went away of themselves. He came to die as a priest for his enemies. In the days of his flesh, he dictated a form of prayer unto his disciples and put petitions unto God into their mouths and his spirit to intercede in their hearts. He shed tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians. He is a meek king. He will admit mourners into his presence. King of poor and afflicted persons. That's the miracle of the incarnation that we're going to spend the next month marveling at. That God draws near to suffering people to relieve them of their fears, and to meet them in the midst of their suffering. How do you know that what you're going through right now won't destroy you, right? If you're actually experiencing the thing that you're most afraid of. Look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Some of you may be familiar with that verse. It's repeated in John chapter 19. It's the picture of Jesus being the perfect Passover lamb where he suffered for people. So the reason you will not be crushed by your suffering is the fact that God crushed his own son. That we serve a God who instead of allowing suffering to consume us, allowed suffering to overcome his life on the cross so that we can draw near This means for the people of God that suffering is never punitive. What you're going through, what you're afraid of, it never has anything to do 
with punishment, but it has everything to do with God's salvation story that's going on in your life right now. Judgment has been put away. It says it very clearly. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servant. Right? If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, He is actively redeeming your life, including the suffering that you're going through. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So this is the good news. Whether you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've done that for the past 25 years or you've never placed your faith in Him. This morning, the cross of Jesus Christ serves as a refuge for people that are brokenhearted, that have been beat down by the wheels of living and they can come and they can take refuge in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself up for you on the cross so that if you look to Him in faith, He will save your crushed spirit. He was crushed on the cross so that you would know the smile of God, so that you would be able to taste and see that he's good, so that you would be able to look him in the eyes and become radiant and become different and become a light in this dark world because God has had mercy on you. That's the invitation of the gospel for all those that are suffering. It's the invitation of the gospel for all those that have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And the invitation is to come, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's no more appropriate message that we can have on Thanksgiving than taste and see that he's good, right? I'm praying that that God would make this more and more our reality. And we have a chance to be able to celebrate that now in communion as we share this meal together. We get to taste tangibly his work on our behalf to leave behind our fears and our anxieties and our worries and the things that crush us and take in our mouths the thing that can deliver us the goodness and the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his finished work on our behalf. I pray that you would help us in these moments to taste and see that you're good. We long to be with you. We long to be comforted by you in our affliction. We long to give thanks to you. We long to come before you as humble and contrite people. As we know we don't have it all together. And we have this promise that you will meet us. And that you will save us. And that you will deliver us. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.